Live from Washington, D.C., it's quintessential listening, Poetry Online Radio. Now, here's your host, Dr. Michael Anthony Ingram. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the program. Over the past 20 years, Kenneth C. Stephen has become one of Scotland's most popular poets. Drawing on a quiet Celtic spirituality and a love of wild space, his captivating poetry offers us something evocative, moving, and beautiful. Kenneth is also a highly successful broadcaster, featuring regularly on national radio. His BBC Radio 4 documentary on the Isle of St. Kilda won her prestigious Sony Award in 2006. Without further ado, I give you Kenneth C. Stephen. I'm recording this in, well, beside my studio. It's too late to be in it. Um, it's late in the evening here in Scotland on the West Coast. And I live on an island called Seal, which is south of the town of Oban on the Scottish West Coast. And the book I'm speaking about is Iona, a volume of my new and selected poems, which is being published by Paraclete in the States. And it's about my 16th collection of work, of poems, but it's my first volume of poems to be published in the States, which is hugely exciting to me. It's a great privilege, a great joy. I'm not just a poet, and really it's not new that I've been writing other things. I work very much also with prose um, as a novelist and as a children's author, and actually as a writer of non-fiction. That's something that's come later, though. The Iona volume that's being published by Paraclete is not actually new. I suppose a few, a scattering of the poems, are totally new. Most of them, though, are gathered from other collections, and some of them have been found from very ancient manuscripts. It's what all writers do, I suppose. We have a proverbial bottom drawer where we gather old things, um, and they often gather dust. And what I did really here was to sweep the dust off those things and to search in a diligent way through through all of them for for things that have been forgotten, I'll put it that way. And I did find some exciting things to me. Um, I should say also that the volume that's been created of new and selected poems, I'm, in a way I'm going to illustrate that. I'm going to read two little sections of poems. The first will be Iona work, and the second not. So the, there are two sections, three sections within the book. The first and the last are about the rest of the world, so to speak. They are other poems. The ones at the heart of it, perhaps 20 or 30 poems, are all in some way or another influenced, inspired by, I should say, the island of Iona. What is this island of Iona? Well, apart from being the fact, apart from being the place where I went, the island where I went as a child, 
Um, it is, by the way, a tiny island off the Scottish west coast in the Atlantic waters in what's termed the Inner Hebrides. It's an island three miles by one and a half, very small, but it punches way above its weight. And that is because St. Columba came from Ireland in the 6th century AD with the Christian gospel. And he chose Iona at a time when the Irish were colonising Scotland. So he was partly politician and partly priest, partly missionary, because from Iona he sent monks and went himself doubtless with the Christian gospel to England and into Europe as well. So it was an incredibly important place. What happened later then was that a medieval monastery was built pretty much on the spot where Columba is likely to have built his wooden, quite primitive, early church, which is known as an abbey. Uh, but it was probably pretty pretty primitive in comparison with what we imagine, what we think of, of as iconic ecclesiastical structures in the 20th and 21st centuries. At any rate, in the 1930s, George MacLeod, who was a minister from the neighbouring island of Mull, decided that he would go with a group of men to rebuild the medieval monastery and create something that he called the Iona community, which was to embody something of the early spirit of Celtic Christianity. That happened, and by doing so, George MacLeod created a mecca for tourists, for pilgrims, for religious tourists. And just to give you a sense of that, to speed up the clock a little bit, today, and this is obviously not in COVID times, today, in July and August, somewhere in the region of 10,000 pilgrims will visit Iona every day. 10,000. It's an extraordinary thought. That having been said, the wonderful thing about Iona, tiny though it is, is that most of those religious pilgrims will keep themselves very much to the east coast, the village and the abbey, the nunnery, and you can, one can, walk over to the west coast, the wild west coast and the beaches and feel that there's no one, nothing between you and the, west, the east coast of America. There are a few islands. <laughs> So that's a wee bit about, a little bit about the background to this. My part in the story is that I was being taken to Iona by my parents um, from a very young age, really from babyhood. I reputedly learned to walk on the island of Iona. I was going from mainland, inland Scotland and this is always amusing to North Americans that um, we do think of Scotland as having very much an inland part, a landlocked part, and having coastal parts. I realise it's it is amusing when one thinks that it's only an hour and a half from the middle, the very middle of Scotland to the coast on either side. 
But at any rate, that's what was happening. And Iona has got, I think this is important to try to say, Iona's got an incredible feeling to it. It's impossible to say in words, to express what that feeling is. It's ineffable, it's indescribable, and maybe in some ways that's what I'm trying to capture and have been trying to capture as a writer and a poet ever since. Um, and maybe that's what I'm trying to communicate in one or two of the poems I'll present in, in my reading, in my recording here. I was visiting the island, as I've said, in early childhood. Um, I then came back to it when my sister Helen was justice and peace worker for the Iona community. This is the community that was established in the 1930s by George MacLeod. And there's a resident community there, very involved in what they feel to be Celtic Christian activity. And at the heart of that is non-violence, peace work, justice work. Not just here, not just on the island of Iona, but in all manner of corners of the world. So at the core of the Iona community is the belief in a Christianity that is alive, that's alive and practicing. It's not so much occupied with sitting praying and feeling that the world is good and that everything's all right. It's much more about getting your hands dirty and being involved in a practical Christianity, which is about being, as they see it, the hands and feet of Jesus in a troubled and a disturbed world. I should say that the book which is being published now by Paraclete in the States is not just comprised of new poems. There are new poems there, but many of the poems have been gathered from earlier collections. This is effectively my 16th volume of poems. It is, very excitingly, a volume of new and selected work. And it's divided into three parts, the book, the first part and the last part comprise poems that are about, if you like, the rest of the world. At the heart of the book are perhaps 20 or 30 entirely concerned with Iona and Iona's story and inspiration. But the others are about all manner of things and I will present a little reading divided into two where I start with Iona poems and finish with poems from the rest of the world, so to speak. And I'm going to read the Iona ones at this point. I'm just going to start with a poem that is from a neighbouring island called Col. But it's also very much Hebridean, and hopefully it conveys something of the character of this wonderful part of the world called the Hebrides, where it's utterly safe to this day to be a child, a young child, getting up early in the morning and going out and walking, running, exploring, playing, just as I was in this memory. Call. I remember what it was like to bear food to that house, wood rooms bleached by light. Days were new voyages, journeys, coming home a pouring out of stories and of starfish. 
the sun never died completely in the night. The skies just turned luminous. The wind tugged at the strings in the grass like a hand in a harp. I did not sleep, too glad to listen by a window to the sorrow sounds of the birds as they swept down in skeins and rose again celebrating all that was summer. I did not sleep, the weight of school behind and before too great to waste a grain of this. One four in the morning at first lark song, I went west over the dunes, broke down running onto three miles of white shell sand and stood. A wave curled and silked the shore in a single seamless breath. I ran naked into the water, went deep into a green through which I was translucent. I rejoiced in something I could not name. I celebrated a wonder too huge to hold. I trailed home, slow and golden, dried by the sunlight. And this next poem is a meditation, really on, on George MacLeod's words about Iona. He described Iona as a thin place. What did he mean by that? Well, in essence, that the veil between this world and God's world was thinner on Iona. And this is trying to wrestle with something of that. Iona. Is this place really nearer to God? Is the, pla is the wall thin between our whispers and his listening? I only know the world grows less and less. Here what matters is conquering the wind, coming home dry-shod, getting the fire lit. I am not sure whether there is no time here or more time, whether the light is stronger or just easier to see. That is why I keep returning thirsty to this place that is older than my understanding, younger than my broken spirit. And this final one on Iona. Place. And God said, Let there be a place made of stone out off the west of the world, Roughed nine months by gale, rattled in Atlantic swell. A place that rouses each Easter with soft blessings of flowers and shocks of white shell sand. A place found only sometimes by those who have lost their way. It was certainly special gathering, the the poems for this. I think it was exciting finding things that had been lost, as it were. And that was probably what I think surprised me most. Just the fact that it's just remembering that that things can be lost and also found. Um, <laughs> and and the lesson to to search the drawers as a writer for what may be forgotten and what may be lost and that there's there can be something shining I won't describe them as diamonds that would be sound hubristic but that there can be there can be things of some shining in among the apparent dross and I think that 
my hope is that people will those people that people will find this particularly in the states actually read this and be inspired by Iona and the message of Iona in a deeper way even if they never visit it but there's something of the essence of the island something of the ineffable essence of that place may be conveyed and may yeah may may uh, inspire I've always I've talked about the fact that I've always written and I started actually by writing stories but I did write poems when I was at school I wrote a first poem a very early poem in my primary that's elementary school days we were encouraged to write only in rhyme and my teacher at that time insisted on us writing things in rhyme to be handed into the school magazine i was 12 years old and i was stubborn i suppose even then and i had written something that wasn't rhyming that was definitely free verse and it did have it was about a, climbing a mountain which was something i had done as a child so i was drawing on what i knew and it was it had something it was very short but it had something atmosphere wise but it wasn't in rhyme. My teacher was quite cross with me for not having written a rhyming poem, but she took it most reluctantly on the day of the deadline and handed it in to the editor of the magazine. And lo and behold, it was published in the magazine and actually won the prize for the for the school magazine poem. I may say as a little postscript to that that my my great joy was not in winning the, the the competition itself per se but in being kissed by the head girl of the school who gave me the prize i thought this was a great uh, yeah this was most exciting that was the best bit of it all so a, a little reference to early days i think that looking back to those school days to later on to secondary school when i was at a different school in that inner part of scotland in Highland Perthshire as it is the two great monoliths on the landscape poetry wise were Seamus Heaney and Ted Hughes one from the first from Ireland of course the second from the north of England there were others who inspired me but it was those two I, whose work I really really loved and it was because to join them together there it was because of their playing with language the wonderful way that they threw words about and allowed words to be free allowed language to play and i think i learned a lot from that over time and that was a yeah that was of of very great importance in my development with writing in general now i would say that probably prime among all the poets would be Wallace Stevens um whose whose work I loved supremely and not all of his work I have to say um but at the heart of it all the early work of Wallace Stevens and particularly Sunday morning which is my favorite poem in the English language I think it's an absolute masterpiece and I say that uh, ironically enough as a poet a man of faith uh even though i have contentions with sunday morning for what might lie behind it but it's 
supremely beautiful. No one can contend with that, in my view. And I think that that relationship with poetry, it's changed because I've changed. It's changed because I've lived in different places and different things have happened to me. And because my reading has changed, because my pace of life probably has changed. It's changed slowly, but I think that my voice is fairly established and firm. I'm not sure I can say more than that. I think others probably could look at it more usefully and 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 tell me how it precisely it has changed. Um, I think I think that that love of nature. Yeah, what I would like to say that's at the very heart of my poetry. A love of creation, a love of the creator. Those are two. They move greatly around different subjects and I write, I write about, I think, I write about all things. I feel poetry should and is taken everywhere. And I think actually, I would say that poetry can be used beautifully even to describe terrible things. That's how I put it. I am a purist when it comes to language. I love beautiful language. I think the English language is supremely beautiful. And therefore, it is very much a language for poetry. We know that. We've known that for a fair old time. And there are lots of favourite phrases and favourite words that I come back to and I have to be careful about that and not not be in danger of, of using those cliched phrases and words over often. Um, I try and think what some of those words might be. I love the word well as in a place of water, a source of water. There's a famous well in Cornwall in the southwest of England called Sancreed Well. And those two words together are supremely, supremely beautiful. Sancreed Well. And I love the word lagoon. I think lagoon has got a marvellous. It's truly onomatopoeic. It's very suggestive. It takes me to a place. I think that having learned, I feel as a poet that having learned something of, of the art of creating poetry, and I'm a big believer in practice writing, I have a studio and in the old days I had a cabin where I wrote. I think it's supremely important that we as writers practice our writing. I don't think we do it enough. I don't think there's nearly enough emphasis on practice writing. And a big part of my spiritual experience of writing is practice writing. It's a bit like doing gymnastics. If you want to be fit, if you want to be well, if you want to be toned, then work at it. Work at training your body. And in similar fashion, if you want to work with words, then train with them. Practice, practice, practice. And I think practice 
truly lies at the heart of this business of poetry as of any other branch of of writing. I think at an early time I knew that poems were out there, so to speak, in inverted commas, and I had to catch them. And often I was frustrated because what I caught on the page was a poor reflection of what was out there, so to speak. I hope, I feel, I dare to say, that over the years I feel I've become a little bit better at capturing poems. I don't always do it. Sometimes they go. But I think I have become more efficient at the capturing of things, so that what's out there is much more what's on the page. I think it's not just a question of poets being speakers to the world. I think writers are too. I think artists are. I think it's incumbent on writers, as other artists, to ask important questions of the society in which they're living. I don't think it's good for them to give answers. That's didactic and it's a danger for all of us. But I do think it's supremely important to be asking important, big questions of the age in which we live. And for what it's worth, I think that's perhaps not being particularly well well done today. I do engage, I'm very much, I feel myself to be almost a 19th century poet in a way. I love, that's come across already I'm sure in what I've said. I love wild places. I love what I call wildscape. And wildscape for me is wild places, the edge of wild places, supremely wild places, and our encountering of them. That's what wildscape is to me. And in a way, it's what my childhood was in the Highlands of Scotland. It was about encountering wild places and storing those memories and then recollection in tranquility, as Wordsworth describes it, putting those things onto the page, trying to bottle them, trying to bottle them. So I don't find it very easy at all to engage with things like Facebook or Twitter or other bits of social media. I do, at the point of the bayonet, I have a Facebook page called Imagining Things, and I try to use it in an idealistic way, in an inspiring way, for myself, for others. Um, so Imagining Things, I try to keep up to date with. But I struggle. I struggle. I don't really feel comfortable with the modern world, per se, and I don't feel comfortable terribly with social media. I'm not... Perhaps for that reason, I'm not really a group person. I'm a solitary, but I always share my work with my beloved Christina. That's important. Special things I always will present to her. She's a tremendous editor. She's a tremendous, tremendous critic. In that she's not sycophantic about my work, she's honest about it. She will tell me when it's failed, which is good, although I don't like it at the time. And she will encourage where she thinks work has gone well, which is really special. She's a very, very astute critic. And we write together quite a lot of the time in non-fiction. I'm not sure what the next steps are. I, I'm not sure what what will come of after Iona. Um, there are new things that might happen. I'm never 
I'm always wary of saying too much about that before, before I'm there. I want to read just one or two of the poems from the very end of, or end of the book, having read things from the beginning of it. This first one is actually from from America. I spent time. I've spent time at Alma College in Michigan, lecturing in Scottish literature. And my cousins live in Grand Rapids, on the west side of the state. And Darlene, my cousin, was very keen to show me the Upper Peninsula, and I loved it dearly. And it was like a melding of Highland Scotland and Arctic Scandinavia, where I've spent time. No wonder the Finns felt at home there as miners. And this is just about the beauty of going to the Upper Peninsula on that first day, the wonder of it. In Michigan. All day we went north and north, crossed the bridge to the Upper Peninsula. And there was something older there, an America everyone forgets. And the woods grew around us, and the blue glass of Lake Superior played and glanced in the white May light. And we came to a place called Paradise, and there was no more motorway, just a slowness to smiling and kindness I'd all but forgotten, that we have left behind in a rush to get somewhere we don't want to be. There was birdsong in the trees, the laughter of children, the blue of the sky and the blue of the lake. The world was made of many blues, and I wanted to take off my shoes. This next poem is really, I think, partly in homage to Cormac McCarthy and his wonderful, wonderful, devastatingly, terribly beautiful novel, The Road, which in many ways has changed my life. It's made me fall in love with what is beautiful again and in a new way. I think it's unremittingly beautiful, and I would encourage those who don't know it to read it. Um, cry your way through it, that's what I would say, because it's terribly beautiful. The Road Now we are hard of hearing. The big world thunders in our ears and gives us all that we do not need. Just sometimes... A young deer turns in the early morning frost and we see for a moment the beautiful road that lies like an ache in our blood. And this last poem, which is actually the last poem in the Iona volume of new and selected work, it's called The Sacred Place. And it was written during a writing workshop that I was leading in the north of Scotland. Normally when I'm leading such workshops I don't write myself. I pretend to, I admit that. But I'm so involved with participants and feeling responsible for their well-being that it's impossible for me to switch off sufficiently to, to write creatively, to go to a deep place, which I feel is imperative for me as a writer and particularly as a poet. But on this day I had perhaps the benefit of two or three hours for the writing workshop and Consequently, I, I did go into a deep place, and I wrote. This, then, is the sacred place. I want to be there, but I cannot reach through the window to the high hills where snow has lain for weeks, a shield smooth now in sunlight glinting. Yet if I were there, 
I would bring the weight of myself, made of so many mistakes, and it would not be any longer. Sometimes it is enough to see the perfect place and keep the snow unbroken. I suppose what I hope readers will get from encountering this volume, encountering my work, I want, I hope they will be challenged. I hope they will have new thoughts, new journeys, new questions. That's all I can ask for. And as I say, the next steps are almost unknown ones. I simply look forward to the possibility of them, to new journeys with words, and to expanding my voice, to seeing the world in wider ways. Yeah, to seeing the world in wider ways. <laughs>